Hey friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. Hi everybody, I'm the new PE teacher here at St. Cecilia's. I've never come to church in, je- in this like sweatpants and a, and a sweatshirt. This is a little bit of, um, this, I can get used to this. This might be something, but I actually miss, no, I'll be dressing normal soon. So thank you all for um, bearing with me. Um, I still have several more weeks of non-load bearing on my foot because of the Achilles surgery, but it's just really good to be back and see you all. Oh, I should tell you, too, this is rather funny. Um, when I was a, a pastor at 40 in, in, in Santa Fe, when we started that, the congregation here called Christ Church Santa Fe, I actually blew out this knee right before our first service, and I had to preach sitting down. That, um, I blew out this knee, and I couldn't have my surgery yet because it was too swollen. Um, but I was on so many different kinds of um, painkillers that uh, I don't remember what I said <laughs> during that first service. And I remember saying right before the, uh, the last song, I said to our assistant, Logan, I said, Logan, I don't know what I just said, but would you please close us in prayer? He said, I'll be glad to close us in prayer. So, but then I was standing on crutches because I didn't have the Austin scooter back then. This is back in the Stone Age. So now I have the nice scooter. Okay, we're starting a new series this morning. Mike and I are going to do a series on... The book of Genesis. We're not going to look at every verse in Genesis, but we're going to do a pretty close flyover of the major stories. And sometimes we might park a little closer because these stories um, come up again and again um, throughout the rest of the, the Holy Scriptures. So we're going to start that this morning. So tonight, that tonight, this morning is kind of a preview of um, the book of Genesis. Oh, and also know that very soon we're going to be starting again, I think in the next two weeks, our narrative lectionary, which is when Nike and I speak every week, the narrative lectionary is a Old Testament text and a New Testament text and how they tie together with Jesus. So we did this for years. Um, the pandemic stopped it because of how we had to lurch with our services. But now that we don't have to lurch with our services, we're going to be bringing back the narrative lectionary. So our texts this morning are from, oh, this is the name of the sermon series, Herman New Genesis. I know it'll make sense, kind of. Herman New Genesis. I'm going to introduce you to Herman and Hank in a little bit. Hermeneugenesis, and this is the real title of the story, if you can go back there, Jess. Understanding the cosmic story from the beginning through the presence and authority of the eternal word of God, Jesus himself. That's the Mark part. You guys are like, of course I had to do the Mark part. So a rather wordy subtitle. I know it sounds like a very um, erudite indie album, but that's, that's it. We're going to look at the Bible through, or look at Genesis through the presence and authority of Jesus, even from the very beginning, and we get that from the Bible. So our text, the first is John 1, verses 1 to 3, and then verses 16 to 19. Now listen how John begins like Genesis, but then introduces Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being? From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law, indeed, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is the only Son, himself God, who was close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Thank you, Jesus. Now Genesis 1, 1 through 5 in the NRSV. One more verse before that. I'll read it from here. Okay. We'll catch up with Jess. Okay. 
In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And while the Spirit from God swept over the face of the waters, then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This is the Holy Scripture. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts and minds be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. I'm going to introduce you all to a word, and the word is called hermeneutics. You've probably heard me and Nika say that. It's not just a theology word. It's a word that's used regarding history or regarding um, science. What hermeneutics is, is the art of understanding something. So in the Bible, we have exegesis. That's what the text says. But hermeneutics is, what does it mean to us? For example, when Jesus says to his apostles, go and tie that colt and bring it to me, that's what it says. But what does it mean to us? Do we have to find a donkey and steal it and bring it to Jesus? No, that's not what it means. What does it mean? We do what we can to serve Jesus, right? So there's a difference between what something says and understanding what it means. So hermeneutics is the art of understanding. Everyone has one, but we don't talk about it. It's the glasses by which we see things and understand things. So I'm going to introduce you to what's called a biblical hermeneutic or an, an old Christian hermeneutic. And then I'm going to introduce you to a Hank Nudic. And Hank Nudic... Hank Nudick is a more recent way of looking at the Bible. We've probably been influenced by both. And we've probably argued over both ways of doing it. And I think we need to stop doing that. But I think there's a way in which we can see the beauty of an old and deeply Christian hermeneutic and still dialogue with what I call the Hank Nudick. So I want to introduce you to Herman. Herman's there on the left, okay? They just got done playing um, uh, dodgeball. Can you tell? Okay, Herman on the left dresses like an old Old Testament person. See that? He looks like John the Baptist. He, he didn't come from a toga party. He's an old guy. Um, and Herman has a hermeneutic way of looking at things. Hank, on the right, has a Hanknutic way, and he's wearing a very modern um, uh, basketball jersey, but I think he needs to have some grooming done to him anyway. But they're friends, and they both love Jesus, and they're no longer throwing dodgeballs at each other, but they're finding ways of agreement. So as we look for understanding the book of Genesis, some of you are more Herman and Herman Nudics. By the way, if you want to spell that, that's not how it's spelled. Mayor said, Mart, spell it. So this is how Herman Nudics is spelled. H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C. That's Herman Nudic, okay? But I thought it'd be easier to say Herman and Hank. Herman is an old Herman Nudic. Hank is a new Herman Nudic. Okay, when it comes to looking at the book of Genesis, how do we understand it? Let's look at Herman's way of understanding. Herman Nutics. According to Herman, we understand every word in the biblical story from the beginning through the real presence of our resurrected Lord Jesus, who sits at the Father's side and who together sends the Holy Spirit to us all. Let's keep it there for a second. You think, well, wait a minute. So you see Genesis through Jesus? I thought Genesis pointed to Jesus. Well, it does. But Herman sees Jesus as resurrected and present and authoritative from the beginning. 
Where does Herman get that? From John 1. That was John, the apostle's hermeneutic. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. So in the book of Genesis, if you remember, and here's what's really interesting and fun. We know that in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, we find the Father. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the Father, right? And then we find the Spirit. And then there was formless void or darkness and form, formless void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the deep, right? So we think there's the Father, there's the, there's the Spirit. Where's Jesus? Well, we've got to wait for him for the Gospel of Matthew. No, 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 no. What is the actual spoken word? And we just said in the creed, through him all things were made. Where did we get that in the creed? We got it from John 1. So as soon as God said, God said, who is that word? Jesus. So there, from the very beginning, we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when John read the book of Genesis, he read it not just toward Jesus, he read it through Jesus. Does that make sense? It may sound weird, but it's the old apostolic way of reading it. So that's how Herman understood it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, John knows the Bible very well, John the Apostle. And he took 30 years. He wrote his, apostle, his, his gospel way later than the other writers did. So he knows the Old Testament. I want you to hear what he says. It sounds weird. He says, the law indeed was given through Moses. So who wrote the first book of the Bible? Well, Moses did. He wrote the first five. And he didn't finish the last book because he died halfway through it. But he had, you know. But anyway, that's, that's no big deal. Okay. The, and, he, and what John says, he says, the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Didn't grace come through Moses too? It did. Moses wrote Genesis 15 and 17, and there's lots of grace in Genesis 15 to 17. And Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Oh, Abraham was saved by faith. Lots of grace. Wasn't there truth in what Moses said? Because the law is the truth. Of course it is. But relative to Jesus, it's just a glimpse of grace, and it's a glimpse of truth. Jesus is the f Jesus is all of it. That's why John says this. Moses gives us a glimpse of who God is. It's like looking at um, an eclipse through a little pinhole. I, I, by the way, teenagers, don't do that, okay? I did that once when I was 17. That was so stupid. I saw something like for, three, like for two months. In my, I didn't tell my parents about this. So I'm telling you now. I gave a bad analogy. But, that, but if you look at a pinhole, like, oh, that's what the sun looks like? No. The sun looks like... If you look at it at a pinhole, you're only getting a, a piece of it. If you only get a piece of it, you don't understand it. You only get a partial revealing of it. What Moses gave us is a pinhole pointed at the sun. And what Jesus has is a bright noonday sun. You see what John's doing? He sees everything through Jesus. So that's what the hermeneutic is. We look at the Bible and we say, Jesus, you're there because you were there at the beginning. All things are made through you and for you. By the way, think about that. When you, when you yell at someone, they're just not just a God-made person. You've got to make it more personal. They're Jesus-made. Every, every human being is Jesus-handmade. Have you ever thought about that? In other words, everyone is artisanal. 
artisanal anthropology. Every human is artisanally created by Jesus, not just by God generically. So when you and I make fun of someone, when you and I are angry, we're, made, we're making fun at someone that was artisanally crafted not just by Jesus, but for Jesus. Whoa. Changes things, doesn't it? That's how John saw Genesis. That's how he began to read it. Now, let's talk about Hank for a second. Okay. Hank and Hank Nudix, how does Hank read the Bible? A lot of Christians do this too. We do this. We kind of flip-flop between hermeneutics and Hank Nudix. We understand every word in the biblical story from the beginning through the authority of every word in the biblical story. Because every word equally reveals the truth of God. The eternal word, that's Jesus, is promised in the beginning book. Now, what's the difference between the two? In the first one, the authority is a person, right? Who's the authority? Jesus. In the second one, the authority is what? Every word. And Jesus is promised, but he's pretty quiet until he shows up in Matthew. See the difference? What difference does it make? Huge difference. We'll talk more about that. Okay, next slide, Jess. Hermeneutics. Can you go back to oh, the other one? Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry, we're there. Where does Hank get his view? Well, Hank gets it from the Bible just the way Herman does. All scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching. Now, Herman also believes this. All Christians should believe that all scripture is inspired. Everyone believes that. But what's different is this. Now, I'm quoting from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, verse 9. Some of you may think, well, Omar, what is that? I'm a total nerd when it comes to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I actually... Most of it I love, and I know it may sound strange, but outside the Bible, I have probably have more parts of the Westminster Confession of Faith memorized than any other book except maybe some poems by Auden or a few other people, or songs by the Beatles, okay? And then, but I've got a lot of portions of this memorized because as a Presbyterian pastor, it really impressed presbyters if you can quote the confession without looking at it, especially when you're being allowed into a new presbyter, like, wow, he has a con- he has it memorized, check. Next question, because I want the exam done. Okay, so that was part of the deal. I just had it memorized. So in the Westminster Confession of Faith, you guys need to know the history of this. 1641 to 1646. Anglicans, that's, um, you know, the Church of England. Anglicans or Episcopalians got together. And then a lot of Baptist Puritans got together. And only six Presbyterians got together. And they studied the Bible for six years. They made a confession of faith. Then they wrote a catechism, which is a question and answer for adults called the larger catechism. And then they made a shorter catechism, which was for kids, but it's so complex, now we give that to the adults, and we just skip the larger catechism altogether. Okay, just be honest. Right, some of you adults that are Presbyterian, you don't know the larger catechism. None of you do. We all know the shorter catechism. Who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own Glory. There you go, you Presbyterians. You know that. Okay. That's all short of catechism stuff. Now, what happens is that in the Confession of Faith, the very first chapter is different than the Creed. When we start the Creed, what do we say? I believe in God. What's the Confession say? As it starts in chapter 1, it starts with the Scripture. It has a great statement about Scripture, that all these books are inspired by God given to us. 
But it does two things. And one that I've disagreed with from the beginning because it's been my experience. In Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, at the end of the first subsection, 1-1, it says that God used to speak in various ways before Jesus. How did God speak? Through miracles. Through theophanies, through fire, through water, through flood. But now that we have the fullness of the scripture, the ways that God used to speak, he doesn't do anymore. And so this is the first document. Now this is the 16th century when rationalism was very important. It basically said, miracles have stopped. And from the very beginning as a Presbyterian pastor, I put up my California, Texas hand and said, nope, disagree with it. Disagree with it, I think miracles still happen. And what's interesting, so do a lot of Presbyterians. I'll tell you why. It may sound funny, but I remember when I was a pastor in, um, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we had a young guy from Calvary Chapel. He was a surfer who started reading Calvin, and he understood the five points of Calvin, and he left Calvary Chapel and came over to the glorious side of us Presbyterians. I'll never forget this. And he, he learned because he asked me. I said, just memorize a few of the confession statements. You'll pass your exam easily. And he did. Now, this is what happened. He said, I've always wanted to go on a mission trip. Tony Curdle, I'll never forget his name. He went on a mission trip to Uganda. He got there, and he met a woman outside of Kampala there in Uganda. And she said to him, as she saw him, Tony Curdo, I've been praying for you. She said, how did you know my name? She goes, I was saved by the Holy Spirit in a dream. I didn't know the Bible. I didn't know Jesus. And I've been praying for you for seven years. God told me you would come. And you're supposed to come and be our pastor. Tony didn't share with people, but in his heart, he had a desire to be a foreign missionary. And he and his wife broke down and wept. What Bible verse says, Tony Curdo, you're going to be a pastor in Kampala? There is no verse. God, the Holy Spirit, communicated that to her, and he believed it. And guess what he did? That hippie pastor took himself and his four children, and he became a pastor in Uganda. Did these ways cease? I don't think so. Okay, so that's my disagreement. But if these ways have ceased, then all we have is what? The book. And if all we have is the book, how do we handle things when we disagree with the book? Now, this is what they said, which I agree with, but it creates a problem. Listen to Westminster Confession 1 verse 9. By the way, this is what we all do. If you, do, if you don't understand one part of the Bible, what do you do? You take other parts of the Bible and you compare it. And the ones that are more clear, you go with the ones that are more clear, right? But I want you to see what the writers of the confession did. Chapter 1, verse 9. The infallible rule. What's the word infallible mean? 100% pure chlorine bleach, clean, nothing, 100%. It's a rule. Okay, this is my inner 12-year-old. 
Is any rule infallible? Rules are made up by who? People. Who determines if that rule is infallible? People. Not to get snarky about that, but if, if the rule is it's in or out, who says it's in or out? You? Oh, okay, I guess it's infallible then, because you said it. My name Brian Regan comes in, like, you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, so the only infallible rule of inter- interpretation is Scripture itself. When there is a question, it must be known in other places. Well, we do that, but it did something. It referred to a thing, not even the Bible, but a way of debating the Bible as what? Infallible. Now, here's what the confession doesn't do. In chapter 1, dealing with the Word of God, it never does what John does. When John talks about the Word of God, John the Apostle, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what, what? Was God. As soon as John starts talking about the Scripture, John can't help himself. What's he start talking about right away? Jesus. Guess what word is absent in the entire chapter on, on, on the Holy Scripture? Jesus. Not one reference to Jesus in chapter 1. Now, there's the reference to Christian prudence, but not one reference to Jesus. And it gives us a rule. And that rule that we think is infallible has created divisions in the church. I'll get to that later, okay? A little spoiler alert ahead of time. When we, we, when we use words like infallible, perfect, we better reserve those words for a person. You hear me on that? Because every rule is subject to interpretation. But it used the word infallible not in reference to the Holy Trinity, but into a principle of understanding the Scripture. And I'll tell you what happened after the confession. Okay, so, in other words, Herman says, well, the infallible rule of interpreting Scripture is Scripture itself. Okay, next slide, please. And under hermeneutics, this is the difference between Herman and Hank, getting a little more precise. The infallible revealer of truth of God is a person. It's Jesus himself. Who is the fullness of God in bodily form, according to Paul? Jesus. Who is the only one who's close to the Father that fully reveals the Father? Jesus. I'll have this on a slide later on, but the only perfect theology in the Bible is Jesus. It's him. Let's not make it a thing. Let's not make it a rule. But under hermeneutics, under hankeneutics, the infallible revealer of God is an infallible rule. And if it's an infallible rule, who decides what rule? Who decides who's in or out? I'll get to that in a second. Because it's had a big effect on church history. So, big difference. As we look at the book of Genesis, who's the infallible interpreter of God? Jesus. Or is it a bunch of verses that we just lob back and forth as a rule and see who wins? The confession set us up for some dodgeball tournaments. I'll get into that in a second. Okay, next one. Hermeneutics. The words of Moses and all biblical authors, they reveal God. When Moses saw the burning bush, he saw a reflection of God. When Moses wrote the Ten Commandments, it was through the finger of God. It reveals God, and yet, what Moses writes submits to the authority and life 
and words of Jesus, who is God. Do you remember the story of the transfiguration? Okay, what happened on the transfiguration? Jesus is getting ready to go to Jerusalem. He takes his three best friends, Peter, James, and John, goes up on a mountain to pray. He goes up on a mountain to pray. Then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah, Moses, who wrote the first five books, Elijah, who's like the Michael Jordan of the prophets, or the LeBron James of the prophets, or the Taylor Swift, if you're new music, of the prophets, okay? He's like the best of the prophets. You got the writer of the first five books, you got the best prophet, and they're both talking to Jesus. Because Moses wrote the word of God, and Elijah preached the word of God. And then Peter, being like me, said, oh, like the three biggies are here. There's Moses, and there's Elijah, and then there's Jesus. Like the, this is like the super group. Man, these guys should go on tour together. Boom, boom, boom. And he said, I'm going to make a separate, like, three different altars for three of you. And then the father comes down in a cloud, and they all get scared. And the father says, this is my son. Listen to him. According to the father, what did he mean by that? Moses and Elijah were bowing down to who? To Jesus. They wrote through the inspiration what we call the scripture or the word of God. But then they met the word of God face to face. And they said, we, listen, don't compare us. Does it make sense? So that's the hermeneutic. The words of Moses and all biblical authors reveal God and the authority of life of words of Jesus, who is God. But under Hank Nudix, now this is what some of us have been taught or caught, is this. The words of Moses and all biblical authors are equally authoritative to the words and life of Jesus. You know why? Because it's in the Bible. So Jesus is just another, he's, just the, he's the fulfillment of the Bible, but his words are just as authoritative. And if you have a difficulty, guess what you do? You get yourself a little dodgeball tournament, you start flopping those words around, and you start having debates, and you see who wins. Because they're all the same. That's under Hank Nudix, not hermeneutics. I'm doing this as ahead of time just so you guys can think about these things and understand. And I'm not making fun of either one because you know what? We probably flip-flop between both camps all the time. And Jesus loves us all. Okay, next slide. The perfect revealer of God is Jesus. Jesus alone is perfect theology. Comparing Scripture with Scripture is vital, but that rule is not God. And it's not infallible because it's enforced not by God. It's enforced by committees, denominations people that have vested interest. All right, next one, please. Thank you. Listen to the inspired Apostle John who knows all Scripture well, including Genesis. Now, this verse to me is one of the most profound verses in all the Gospels. John says this in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. In the Old Testament, did people see God? Oh, well, yeah. Moses saw God, saw the backside of God. Moses saw the fiery furnace. Daniel in the lion's den saw one like the Son of God, which is Jesus. So are there glimpses of God? Doesn't John read the Old Testament? Oh, of course he does. What does he mean? Comparatively, what Moses saw, what Daniel saw, is blindness compared to Jesus. Because only Jesus perfectly reveals who God is. 
Do you see what John is doing? He's giving us a hermeneutic. He's telling us how to do this. Now, I haven't talked to Nika about this specific question, but I think we both have, 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 have kind of skirted around this. In all my years as a, as a professor in seminaries and as a student in seminaries, never once did I see or hear about a class on this. Let's look at the Bible for the whole semester the way that the writers of the New Testament read the Old Testament. How did they understand it? Not one class on that. It was assumed. We said, well, we, they, they did it this, and they did it through the Word of God. But we never took every verse of John, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Paul, Peter, and all the ways in which they quoted the Old Testament and asked ourselves the question, how did they do it? How did they see it? What was their hermeneutic? In my background, we got our hermeneutic from 1.9 in the confession and just assumed that's what the apostles did. Does that make sense? I don't, I don't know any, any group that does that, save one. The Greek Orthodox Church, they do that part right. But I got to tell you, they don't do the mission of God part. They need help with us. They got that part right, but they don't do the mission of God the way we do. They're, they're a little bit difficult. If you ever meet them, you get a hug. They need a hug. So if you meet someone that's Greek Orthodox, just give them a hug. And say, thank you for your hermeneutic, but you can really work on your missions. And you learn from us Protestants about that. All right, so that's my... But what I'm getting at here is that that's very important. And what we're doing here is that I'm helping you guys see, what did John do when he read Genesis? He did it through Jesus as resurrected Lord, not Jesus coming in the future. Because when God said, let there be light, Jesus is the one that said it. The same Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? We need to have that hermeneutic. All right. So, we'll get into this later on. If Jesus fully reveals God, what if we read a part of the Bible where the character of God doesn't look like Jesus? How do we handle that? We're not going to play dodgeball. This is what we're going to do. We read the text with great patience under the authority of Jesus. Can we all agree to do that? Number two, we read the text with great diligence. Oh, that's hard. Stay with it. You know, the first time you tried Brussels sprouts, be honest, nobody liked them until you roasted them with Parmesan cheese, then you loved them, but they still smell like you shouldn't eat them. Right? Stick with it. Some Old Testament texts are like cooked Brussels sprouts. You think, no way. Stay with it. Stay with it. Thirdly, we're going to read the text in the context of community. What do the Bible writers say about that text? What do the saints of old say about that text? What does the Holy Spirit say to you about that text? And lastly, this is very important. We hold our conclusions of that difficult text with great generosity towards others. Because if it's a difficult text, we submit to the authority of Jesus and not to a what? A rule that we determine. Make sense? That's what the early church did. So, when it comes to this as we go through Genesis, we're going to have like some texts are going to smell like, like, like chocolate 
um, Texas chocolate sheet cake. Like, are you kidding me? I can eat the whole thing, right? They're going to smell, and others are going to smell like Brussels sprouts, and not even like broiled Brussels sprouts, boiled Brussels sprouts, which is a huge mistake. Just boil eggs and Brussels sprouts together. I mean, oh, man. But there's some texts in the Bible that are like, oh, that God is so, blah. hold on, hold on. Don't, diligence, patience, community, Jesus. Stick with it. We may have some variances on that. We're going to have discourse and we're going to have dialogue. But if we don't do this, this is what happens. Okay. Now, this is what, the, the writers of the confession can see this coming. But you, what are they playing right there? Dodgeball. Okay, those three guys, so two guys and a gal, they've got three balls, and the other team just threw their one, and it missed them. Oh, who's going to win this round? Well, they're obviously Presbyterian, okay? Because they got more verses because they know the Old Testament and New Testament, and they're debating a Baptist on how you're baptized, whether you're immersed or whether the water's applied to you and whether it goes to children and adults or only adults. And the Baptists threw their one ball. Here come the Calvinists. Boom, 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 boom. Then after the confession, all that unity that they had when they wrote the confession, guess what happened? Who split away from each other? The Baptists split away from the Presbyterians on what? The infallible rule. And then the Lutherans split away from the Presbyterians what? On the infallible rule. And then the Anglicans split away from the Presbyterians on what? The infallible rule. Because Presbyterians say, no bishops. And Anglicans, yes, bishops. Infallible rule. And they said, no bishops, infallible rule. We win. Do we win? No. Okay, let's just separate. Because we had infallible rules rather than serving an infallible God. And we didn't hang on to each other. See what I'm talking about? So when we come to that, the only perfect theology is Jesus. It's him. So some morsels to chew on. I know I've, I've read these that text to you, but this is more of an introduction this morning. When John begins his gospel, he doesn't just introduce us to the birth of Jesus. He shows us how to read Genesis through the presence and the authority of Jesus. When you read Genesis 1, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, and then John goes, this is what God said. God said, Jesus, you're the word. And Jesus, you're the light of the world. And Jesus, you came into this world even with sin. You, you came to your own. Your own received you not. But to those who did receive you, to them they become adopted and sons and daughters of God. And Jesus, the word became flesh and you dwelt among us. And you fully reveal the Father. John saw all that in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. We need to do the same thing. Okay? The eternal word is Lord over the written word. When Peter tried to make the written word of Moses and the written word or the spoken words of Elijah equal with Jesus, the Father came down and corrected the apostle. Because what did he tell the apostle who made them all equal? Uh, Peter, this is my son. Listen to him. That's a hermeneutic. Hear it? Okay. Lastly, when reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, Jesus, I know you're here. Show up. I'm going to stick with this text. It smells a little bit like Brussels sprouts. I'd rather have the sheet cake, but I know you're here. And if you're here, Jesus, I know you're here, Father. This is a hard text. Help me understand it. 
but we do it together as a community. Okay. We're not going to fight, because I think this is what's going to happen. Some of you were born in a hermeneutic camp, some of you were born in a hankneutic camp, and some of you were never born in either one, you just became a Christian, and you don't know which one to be. I think we should lean towards the older one, but I think we reflexively go to the, the Hank Nudics because it's just simpler. It's just easier. But just because it's easier doesn't make it better. And I also want to say this. Um, this has been a hard week. Brian Dunnigan, who's the pastor of Highland Park Presbyterian Church, 43, died in his sleep on Tuesday, on Monday night. No, Wednesday night, excuse me. It was Wednesday night. Um... Our youngest son and his wife, they moved from Nashville this last year, partly because of what happened um, at the school where Chad, um, who many of us know, at, when, when his daughter was killed in the school there at, at Christ Presbyterian. And our, our son and daughter-in-law said, I, I, this is too much for us. So they moved to the one state that had the lowest rate of these kind of incidences. And that state is Maine. They bought a house on the coast of Maine. They both work remote. They were 20 miles from Lewiston. They had been sheltering in place until they found the guy who did this. These kind of things make no sense. It's been a hard week. And I want to tell you something about what I love in Genesis 1.1. When Moses wrote Genesis 1, a lot of scholars think, and there's some debate, but there's, there's also validity to this. This is when the people of God, God's people, were wandering in the wilderness waiting to go home. And when Moses wrote Genesis 1, he says, In the beginning God creates the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And the actual Hebrew word is beautiful. It's two. Tobu wabohu. I know, doesn't that sound like a great, um, it sounds like, like a really good band, right? Tobu wabohu. But that alliteration, tobu wobohu, you know what it means? I think Robert Alter has the best translation. It's waste and wheel. What he's, John's talking about is that in the beginning, when there's just a lot of confusion and darkness and weirdness, and then the Spirit of God hovers over that, and God says what? Let there be light. And who is that light? It's Jesus. So, Here's what I know in life. Tobu Obohu is not a one-time event. When there are car accidents, Tobu Obohu. When there is shootings in schools and in bowling alleys, Tobu Obohu. When there is national um, floods and people losing their jobs and being displaced, Tobu Obohu. When there is cancer, Tobu Obohu. When there is mental illness, Tobu Obohu. Waste and wheel. When there's addiction, Tobu Obohu. But who is always present when there's chaos? Where is God located in this world? The cross of Jesus is what? Tobu Wabohu. He's always there. He's always there. We have to trust him that what we see is not really what's going on. God is located where there's waste and wheel, and he does not give up on it. You want to know why? Because all these things were not just made by Jesus, but for Jesus. He doesn't give up. Neither do we. Because if we have a good biblical hermeneutic, wherever there's tobu abohu, 
we can know where God is. God is always located in the waste and in the weary. He loves you. Don't give up on him. Hang on to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for showing us in Genesis 1 that where there is tobu or bohu, you are there. Thank you for showing us that we can read the scripture, not just to Jesus, but Lord Jesus from you. And as we do this, Lord, help us hang on to each other more than we hang on to principles. Help us hang on to you more than we hang on to principles. And as we discuss the easy and difficult parts of the Bible, please, Lord, um, help us see you in all these things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.